Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On today's episode, I speak with Rachel Harris, author of Listening to Ayahuasca. Rachel is a psychologist with both a research and a clinical background. She was in the 1968 residential program at Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California, and remained on the staff for a number of years. She's also worked as a psychological consultant to Fortune 500 companies, including the United Nations. Rachel was in private psychotherapy practice for 35 years, specializing in people interested in psychospiritual development. In 2005, Rachel began working with the South American plant medicine, ayahuasca, which became the main focus of her life and work since retiring as a clinical counselor. In this episode, we get into some of her research on the healing benefits of ayahuasca, the keys to realizing long-term lasting change after a psychedelic experience, psychedelic psychotherapy, and a lot more. As you'll hear, we touch on my own work helping people prepare for and integrate their psychedelic experiences using a holistic approach that blends aspects of yoga, somatic psychotherapy, and integrative coaching. If you're interested in learning more about that, or interested in working with me yourself, you can visit medicinepathyoga.com forward slash integration to find out more. If you'd like to support the podcast, please consider leaving a review on iTunes and sharing with your friends on social media. You can also make a financial contribution at medicinepathpodcast.com or become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com forward slash Brian James Teaching, where for only $5 a month, you'll gain access to hours of yoga practice resources. 
Now, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Rachel Harris on The Medicine Path. Rachel, thanks so much for joining me. <laughs> Hi, Brian. <laughs> well, first off, I just want to say that I'm really enjoying your book, Listening to Ayahuasca. And um, I especially appreciate how honest and open you are when you're relating your experiences with ayahuasca. I find it like really refreshing. And I think it's great to have an experienced female voice uh, in the mix of this psychedelic world. Uh, I think mm -hmm. you're few and far between. And so I really appreciate that, that you've put out this book. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm at a stage in life where uh, I'm, I'm ready to be transparent about pretty much anything. So I do feel kind of free. Yeah, I, I would get that sense in the book too. There is a sense of uh, freedom and open curiosity uh, that comes across in your writing. And um, yeah, it's just really refreshing in a world where there's so many authorities, yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, I, I really claim to, to remain in mystery. I mean, mm. there's more that I don't understand than that I understand. So uh, I, there's a lot that's mysterious about this medicine. Mm -hmm. Well, I thought um, maybe we could start by going back to your beginnings and I'm especially interested in your time at Esalen and uh, in your bio you mentioned that you went to Esalen in the late 60s to study meditation and body work and I've had the opportunity to teach at Esalen a few times with uh, one of my mentors Mark Whitwell and uh -huh. I'm just really curious to hear what the Esalen scene was like back in the late 60s oh, and 70s. <laughs> Oh, after saying how transparent I want to be, you really hope <laughs> Well, I went straight from college. I was 21 years old, 1968. And, um, you know, it would, I, I went into the residential program. It was, I think, the third attempt at having a residential program. The first two had collapsed after a few weeks. <laughs> They didn't, they really didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> and, and so I think this was the first one that actually lasted a full six months where we actually, there were 11 of us and we were really a group and we worked on ourselves for about 50 hours a week. It was like a job. And um, uh, the person in charge of the program brought in basically the leading therapists and meditation teachers and, and experiences for us to go through. And it was kind of an experiment to say, if we expose, you know, you people to all these things, what, what are you going to do with it? But they, they didn't um, understand about integration back then. Mm -hmm. And so after six months of 50 hours a week, I, 
I personally was kind of in shreds. I didn't know what to do with myself. And by that time, I was all of 22. So I think, I think I'm a good example of um, not taking the advice <laughs> that, uh, that is you have to have a strong ego before you lose your ego. Mm-hmm. As a young woman, I didn't have a strong ego. And so I was really at a loss. And I didn't know how to pull myself together. And most of us stayed on in the, on the staff back then. So I remained at Esalen for another couple of years. And there are always all these questions about what was, what was it like back then. And it, there were lots of drugs. There were lots of drugs everywhere in California. But we were very safe and protected. Um, and so the psychedelics that I experienced back then, we did in a very spiritual, meditative kind of context. I was not going to, uh, you know, uh, big music concerts and that sort of thing. It was very, um, we were very spiritually oriented in, in my group. We had a strong grounding in meditation. I mean, we, we spent a week at Tassajara, which was the first Zen center. It's back in the mountains um, east of Esalen. And, and it had Suzuki Roshi back then. And uh, we really, I mean, we benefited from the exposure to the leading lights of the times, both in, in psychotherapy and in, in meditation and spiritual training. I mean, this is where Ramdas came when he returned to the States from India. He came to Bixar near Esalen, and he was in a little um, cabin, and he would do um, meditation sessions and sing and, and sit. And so he was re-entering. I mean, talk about a cultural re-entry. He was just re-entering. So it was that kind of place back then. So it was wild and rich and amazing. And women were treated badly. It was 1968. Oh, really? mm. women, women were treated badly everywhere. But this was even worse. So um, that was some of my experience. And it took me years to sort of recover and figure out, well, now what do I do with myself and my life? And how can I go to graduate school when I've been exposed to this range of, of experiences that were at least a decade beyond the academic world? Hmm. So that was really a challenge for me. So um, yeah. it's really my foundation, though. Yeah, and I think like Esalen back then was uh, very much like an incubator for a lot of the people who have become leading lights in right. uh, alternative forms of psychotherapy and body work. Right. Like people right. like, uh, did you ever meet Stan Groff there? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So all those people were going there to uh, develop right. their work, and I guess you were exposed to that. Right. Mm. Right. That's, you know, he was just beginning to present his uh, framework for uh, the different stages or I don't think he keeps them in a, he doesn't keep them linear, but the different aspects of a psychedelic experience, Mm -hmm. whether it's personal history or birth related or archetypal, he was just sort of laying that out back then in the late sixties. So some of that early stuff that you're exposed to, you later incorporated into your psychotherapy practice, things like... That was really my foundation. I avoided academic psychotherapy training by going into a research track. Uh, Okay. So you you always, from the beginning, incorporated movement and body awareness in your 
psychotherapy practice. And I'm wondering, uh, that's an interest of mine as well. And I'm wondering if uh-huh. you could speak a little about what you led to uh, follow that approach and why you think the body is important in psychotherapy. <laughs> I know, you know, well, I have my own ideas, but just <laughs> for our listeners. I, is there still doubt about, you know, felt experience in the body is important? Do we still have doubts about that? I mm. mean, <laughs> Even the analysts are um, understanding that the body is important. Even the psychoanalysts, is what I'm saying, are have an understanding that the body is important, and they may interpret it neurologically, but they even understand it. So I think that's pretty well accepted these days that the lived, felt experience in the body is the grounding for emotions and feelings and intuitions. And that's all part of the material that we explore in a psychotherapy process. But I was trained in the movement work based on the Roth work. So I came from that little segment of the body work because Ida Roth was very big at Esalen in the, in the 60s, just as Fritz Perls was. They were sort of the elders in, the, in that world. And so I trained in the movement work and um, but uh, I didn't want to stay just in doing that. And, and so I incorporated it. Actually, I did some research on that work and I incorporated it into um, the psychotherapy work and the workshops that I did for years. Um, I also was active with the American Dance Therapy Association and I started there. And that's very different um, in the sense that it came out of uh, it didn't have its groundings in this sort of uh, humanistic psychology. It came, it grew out of uh, dancers working in psychiatric hospitals. So it really came out of a psychiatric context. And uh, the, the founder of dance therapy worked at St. Elizabeth's, which was one of the oldest psychiatric hospitals in Washington, D.C., And so dance therapists were trained to work with really sick and heavily medicated people. And I started with a colleague. Um, I started their, uh, I co-edited their journal of the, the, actually I created the professional journal for the American Dance Therapy Association. But this was also a sense of the importance of spontaneous movement and the felt experience of that and the meaning that it has for people and the metaphors that can be used to explore that movement in a way that makes sense to a patient um, personally, that they can work with it. Hmm. How, so it how is, does, well, how does something, again, sorry. Yeah. It's again, that interface between nonverbal and verbal and working back and forth. Mm-hmm. between between those two aspects. So I wonder if you can articulate how something like spontaneous movement helps to affect transformation on a psychological level. Well, you know, it's... Um, my mentor in dance therapy has always worked in mental hospitals and, and she's specialized for the last couple of decades with... Um, eating disorders. And if uh, people want to look for her, I bet she's on YouTube uh, demonstrating examples of dance therapy. Her name is Susan Kleinman. And um, she's an elder in that profession now. And she's just extremely gifted as a therapist. 
And uh, so she's able to do sort of miraculous things that I've really not seen many people able to do with even large groups of, of people moving. And um, she's, she's able to explore, to connect their movement with how they feel about themselves in the world, whether they're confident in their movement or exploratory or sort of stifling themselves or busy um, criticizing themselves if they're moving. And she's able to work with the meaning of how they're moving in their own context. So mm. I, I don't have her gifts. I mean, I helped start the journal and I, I have always worked with the body experience, but she has uh, real gifts for working with um, creative movement. Hmm. So the idea being that through spontaneous creative movement, it would reveal something of our core beliefs about ourselves or our psychological Every, we reveal We reveal ourselves in everything we do. <laughs> yeah. Everything. So it's just a framework then to focus in on that. It's another modality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I've, done, uh, I've done some training in Hakomi, which for the listeners right. is, a, is a body-centered, mindfulness-based approach to psychotherapy. And I was wondering if you ever uh, met Ron Kurtz, its founder. Yeah, I know. Yeah, he's gone now. Yeah, I knew yeah. Ron. Yeah. Yeah. Is that something that you explored? Because it seems like... Um, there's a lot of things connecting there, there the mindfulness and the body centering. We, we really developed separately. I mean, we were old friends. We developed separately, but we had a lot in common. And he was a crazy genius, as many of the originators are. And so it's, um, he really developed a very interesting system. And he had a very gifted way of working with people that sometimes just seemed crazy and then it would unfold in a way that, that had meaning. Hmm. So he's trained a lot of people. Yeah. He's kind of famous for being able to see things in people and draw it out of them with these very simple little prompts. Like he's kind of famous for saying something like, Hmm, sadness, huh? And then it would open up this whole <laughs> inquiry for the person. And, and some of the people who have trained under and have taken this on because they can't think of a better way to, to approach uh, what they're seeing in the person other than just noticing and that little question, huh? <laughs> Which in Canada... That's we, a great example. We, we might translate that in Canada to, uh, oh, there's a little sadness, eh? A, <laughs> the translation, right, right, well, you know, and that to, really, that's yeah, a we good have to adapt to, we have to adapt to the culture, I think, you know, right. the people right. we're working with, so. <laughs> right, that is a good example of his genius, yeah. Mm. Okay, so from those beginnings, you then went on to have a long and illustrious career as a psychotherapist with a private practice, uh, you wrote at I, least I, one you know, book. I, just, and, I raised a daughter, I worked hard. <laughs> Um, and you know, my roots, I, I did workshops for a couple of decades. I would, um, go off and do workshops, but basically I was a householder, you know, I was raising my daughter and around the time she, um, was finishing graduate school, I, uh, I was living in New Jersey. It was the dead of winter and I was looking for a beach vacation. 
And yeah. I just, well, you read my mind. This is where I was yeah. leading you. So thank yeah, you. <laughs> right. And I just, you know, I saw, I had heard about a retreat center. I really didn't look at the brochure and I just signed on. And um, it was in Costa Rica between the rainforest and the Pacific Ocean. I thought that sounds good. And um, I had been to retreat centers before where I just sort of do my own thing. And, you know, I'm, it's a quiet place and there's kind of that personal freedom. And that's what I had planned. And a couple of days before I was to take off, somebody called and said, do you want to participate in the ceremonies? And I said, what ceremonies? That's, I mean, I really, I missed all the keywords. I really didn't know. And I didn't even recognize the people giving talks. This, it was Jeremy Narby was going to be there oh. giving lectures. And I, I didn't even look him up. I didn't know who he was and I didn't care. And um, so I had never heard of ayahuasca. And as soon as I figured out what it was, it was like, yes, of course, <laughs> this is. You know, this is the the um, full integration of my my youth with now, you know, this new stage of life with my daughter grown. And so uh, I have found that I just sort of keep saying yes, basically, in this this new world that opened up to me. And that was about 2005. Mm -hmm. And so I went and I had an amazing, as many, many people do, I had an amazing first experience. And uh, was that in a traditional kind of ceremony? Yes, they were Ecuadorian shaman. Okay. And so was there uh, singing and shamanizing happening? Yes, <laughs> I was shamanized. <laughs> yeah. the, one of the shaman worked on me for about an hour, um, removing darts is what he said. I mean, I had no idea what this was, and I still don't really. But he, he really worked hard, and he's, he's removing darts, and he's spitting, and I'm sitting there. And, um, and finally, he says, well, this is the next morning, he told me. He finally figured out a way, instead of removing each dart individually, he, it's, evidently I had too many. Um, he figured out a way to remove all of them at once. <laughs> I think there are computer analogies to this, instead of individually removing. And so... I, who knows what that was all about? I, I don't know. But that was my first, that was during that first week. Mm. So he's uh, sucking and, and doing this work on you, which may have seemed quite strange. And what was your experience while that was happening? I was just trying not to vomit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Yeah. And the next morning, I mean, I, I thought, you know, who, who, you know, I know, but that's my life. I mean, that's what my life is like in ceremonies. Um, and the next morning I'm thinking, you know, what are these darts and, and who put them in, you know, who sent them to me, who attacked me with them? And I, I mean, I don't know. Hmm. So, yeah, but, was it, was know, there any idea of that it had something to do with perhaps your psychotherapy practice and taking on other people's negative energy or something like that? For, for 30 years, it could be. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, yeah. So after that happened, did you feel any any shift in yourself? Did you feel no. light, lighter or more clear? <laughs> no? <laughs> no. <laughs> so, no, uh, it's, 
it's I don't know. It does it didn't have meaning to me. I know it has great meaning as part of the healing experience and the power of the shaman to be able to do that clearing. But I never really understood that and uh, and didn't really experience a difference from it. So that was not that was not the amazing experience that sort of bonded me to this medicine. Um, and and the, the amazing experience that really uh, bonded me was a chance to relive the death of my father mm. and to be with him in those final hours and then to travel with him part way as he was leaving and shifting from one world to another. And I had experienced that spontaneously while he was dying. He, I had brought him home to die to my home. Um, but it, I didn't really understand what it was until I really had a chance to relive it, knowing that I was traveling with him um, from this world to another world, which, which really felt very cosmic and and you know went into a mystical experience so that was a pretty powerful psychological and cosmic experience that really bonded me to this medicine so that you know the next morning when i woke up my main question besides the wow and feeling just amazing how does this work and Mm. i'm still asking that question i don't have an answer and, and there's a lot of mystery involved in how does this work. So how did that experience of reliving your father's death change your relationship to your father's death? Well, isn't that interesting? It's, it's, uh, it's something that we as therapists have to understand that when, when someone has an experience, it changes their past as well as their future. They have the experience in the present. I happen to be in a ceremony. But it can happen in a therapist's office as well. And it changes their history in both time directions, both in the past and in the future. So it was a chance for me to savor um, the final expression of love from my father before he fell into a coma. You know, the final words are often about love. Hmm. And... um, so it was a chance to relive that and savor it and and to live it again without the trauma, the the extreme situation of watching my father die. Hmm. Um, so it was in a more, uh, you know, it was a chance to relive it when I could absorb it even more. And that changed a lot of, uh, it's almost as if uh, dominoes fell into place, sort of click, click, click kind of like that, where I could um, sort of connect the dots of all my experiences of feeling loved by my father. So that sort of changes the past history. And and then to have that experience, um, it changes the future of who I am as a woman, as a daughter, even though my father's gone, uh, to feel that I'm I was a daughter who was always loved is very different. Hmm. Do you find that that's changed your relationship with your own daughter? You know, I'd have to ask her. Hmm. Uh, 
I, I don't think that's the key thing that changed my, that, you know, her, her growing up has changed my relationship with my daughter. I mean, my dad died. She was, uh, you know, 16 or 17. Mm. So, I mean, this is a time of big change for a young woman. Um, I, I think I have, my father was a wonderful grandfather to her. And so I think what I have is even greater appreciation of what he gave her mm-hmm. as she was growing up. That seems to be often the case, right? That, um, that like our parents are fully able to love our children because there's some more distance there. You know, they're often not living with the grandchildren Right. I think they're more, and of course, they're at a later stage of life, and they right. may be more open to things, or, and so they're able to e- more easily express love and, and playfulness with the grandchildren that they may right. not have been able to do with their own children, right? That's correct, yeah. And I, I've seen that and, with my, my own parents, and it's really beautiful with, uh, with my brother's children, and um, uh-huh. the way they are with them, it's, just, it's super sweet, you know? Yeah, and see, that can be healing, watching your parents mm-hmm. with with the generation below you, even your brother's children, not even your own. It can be really healing. You see a part of your parent that maybe you hadn't, that you had missed. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah, often it's something that we're not even able to see because there can be so much resentment when we're a teenager or whatever, right? So, right, there's all that. <laughs> yeah, all that. <laughs> right. <laughs> that sort of covers a lot of territory. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing that experience about your father. That's really beautiful. I appreciate that. So I'm wondering, um, how did... Uh, so you continue to then explore ayahuasca, and I'm wondering how... Or if it oh, no, if, let, let me just, I came oh. back from Costa Rica, called all my friends, and organized everyone <laughs> to go the following year. I mean, I did what everybody does. This is an amazing medicine. <laughs> you started proselytizing. <laughs> well, you know, my friends were all old hippies, so it didn't take a lot of proselytizing. <laughs> it was mostly about, do you want to come? <laughs> and, you know, people signed up. And so everybody who came, these were my old friends, they had also had... Um, even they were even more experienced than I was with psychedelics and two of my most experienced friends I'll never forget them sitting the following year were in ceremony they happened to be sitting in chairs and nothing happened mm-hmm. and they drank two three cups and nothing happened they were bored out of their minds I didn't really notice because you know a lot was happening for me but um you know, I got the story the next morning. They were bored and around, you know, somewhere two in the morning or so, they just went to bed. Not Literally nothing happened. And, I, you know, how do you, I'm enough of a Western researcher that I have to say, how does this happen? How can there be such a wide range of responses? I mean, physiological as well as um, experiential to the same medicine. Mm-hmm. And do, you, the, do you think it's chemical or do you think it's psychological resistance at play? Well, you know, we asked the shaman, not exactly that question, but we asked, how come nothing happened? He, and he just very, he'd seen it before. He said they weren't called. Hmm. Now. Which is a spiritual <laughs> reason. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, what do you think now? Uh, what is it? 
25 years later? I don't well, know how long. you know, almost 15 years later. Okay, 15 I, years. I have no clue. How do we explain that? I don't know. The wife, it was a couple. The wife has gone on to sit in ceremonies and, um, you know, has had plenty of connection to mm. a shamanic path. The husband is older and he decided not to. So they weren't called at that time in that situation or he wasn't called. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I can't really explain it. Well, this is one of the things I love about your book. Oh, oh I, that's you. <laughs> my dog got woken up. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was just going to say that this is one of the things that I love about your book is that you're not so quick to um, find an explanation for these things. It's really impossible, I think, you know, to honestly right. uh, claim that you know what's going on for that person or in them. So, I, And I give another example in my book of someone who came to ceremonies regularly and was experienced and always had, you know, the medicine was a friend of hers. I mean, she had her own relationship with the medicine. And one time I was with her and she said nothing happened. She had no response. And we didn't understand it. And there was no easy explanation for this. And then the next afternoon, you know, not the the following morning, she's part of the group and sharing. So then at the afternoon, it's not quite 24 hours later, maybe 18 hours later, she's driving home And she has to pull off the road because she's having this, <coughs> excuse me, sorry, this incredible emotional response that's um, to problems in her family. And she's crying and talking to herself. And I mean, she literally couldn't drive. She pulled off the road and she's not in an altered state like being in the medicine. It's not that the medicine came on, but that the emotional impact of the ceremony hit her the next day, the next Mm -hmm. afternoon. And she, you know, went through this in the car for about an hour, got herself together and then drove the rest of the way home. Hmm. You know, we don't have an explanation for this. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's something I've experienced sitting in ceremony with people many times and it's, Sometimes I think that the medicine's working in a way that's so subtle that it's not easily perceived by the person, you know. So they say, well, nothing really happened because they didn't have any visions or they weren't vomiting. But perhaps the medicine was working on this more subtle level. I guess it was. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Um, I'm wondering if your experiences with ayahuasca changed the way that you think about psychotherapy. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, even when I talked about how um, a therapeutic moment can change the past and the future, that's a very shamanic perspective. That's not just traditional psychotherapy. But I think the, the biggest change is when I'm talking with someone who has their own relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca. And then there is a sense of Uh, there's more than just the two of us here. Hmm. So there's a sense of uh, we are in each other's presence. 
And there's another element present as well. So there's something that's bigger that's holding the two of us. And uh, th- that's inexplicable. Hmm. So I would say that's the biggest change. And I think it allows for an incredible fluidity in working with someone's history um, Mm. that's not always present if someone has not had experience with with this medicine. Mm -hmm. There's something that's unique about it. Yeah, when I'm doing um, uh, preparation or integration work with people, we could be talking on Skype or Zoom, just like we are now. So rem- removed by hundreds of miles. And I still get the sense um, that we enter into a medicine space, which is how exactly. I, I think of it. And it's it changes the way I'm, I'm focused. Uh, I feel it almost tangibly as, a, like you said, container. And I find that my focus gets quite zoomed in uh, on that person. And there is this... Uh, easy flow between us. It's quite magical. Yes, there's a magical element to it. But I wonder if that is also something that happens for uh, experienced and adept psychotherapists as well. No. No? This is is (laughs) qualitative. I can tell you. (laughs) No, this is qualitatively different. Oh. See, this is why I wanted to talk to you. You're the first person. I've talked to a psychotherapist before. I've talked to uh, people who have done medicine or led groups, that kind of thing. Um, But I think you're the first person that I've talked to who uh, has had both of these experiences, and especially so much experience with psychotherapy and now with plant medicine. So it's great to get your perspective on these things. I have a lot of questions for you. Yeah, I'm very (laughs) clear about that answer. Hmm. This is really qualitatively different. And I have a a friend who's a Jungian analyst, and he's relatively new to the medicine. It's been one to two years that he's been working with the medicine. And he said sometimes in a therapy session, he says things that he doesn't, he hadn't even planned to say. I mean, words come out of his mouth that that are quite different, and it's almost as if it doesn't come from him. Mm-hmm. So there's something spontaneous happening in his work as a as a Jungian mm. that's that is again qualitatively different. So that's a slightly different report than I'm giving. Mm-hmm. That could be with someone who's involved in the medicine or not. But he's saying I'm changed as a therapist, and I'm open to saying things that are very different for me. Mm-hmm. So he's talking about how he's changed as a therapist. And I'm I'm talking about the connection between two people, just as you, you were also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I've had the other experience as well, working with people uh, through my yoga teaching who may not have any medicine experience. Right. But I do find that my experience with the medicine changes the way I'm able to relate to people and be present yes. with them. Right. Um, I feel it's like it opens up a true like heart-to-heart dialogue and creates that, more easily maybe creates that therapeutic relationship. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you a question. Do you, have you worked with someone the next morning after a ceremony? Have you worked with them in a, doing yoga together? Yes. And so how are they different? How is, 
how are they? Well, um, yeah, so last year I worked for three months at the Temple of the Way of Light in Peru, uh -huh. teaching morning yoga classes and afternoon um, meditation sessions. I would also do a, a pre-ceremony yoga practice and uh, intention setting circle. Mm -hmm. um, and it was the most satisfying teaching experience of my life. Like I, like I said, I taught at places like Esalen and other, you uh -huh. know, amazing retreat centers. Right. Um, and so I had some really great teaching experiences where people came with intention and a level of openness and all that, but nothing like what I'd experienced down in the jungle. Um, it facilitated the transmission of this wisdom of yoga in a way that I've never experienced before. People were very open um, to a more gentle breath-centered approach, um, listening to their body, letting their breath guide the practice rather than being forceful. Uh, so they were quite receptive. And I felt like it just cut through a lot of crap, like that people bring a lot of uh, baggage around yoga, you know, um, because there's a lot being presented out there as yoga right. that doesn't really right. resemble what I think of as yoga. Um, so people just were like really open. Um, and they also, in the ceremony, I think, have an experience of their own body and energy that informs yoga at its foundation. Uh, like that's really what it's all about, is working with your energetic body, helping to clear obstructions and that kind of thing. And so if people have that experience in a ceremony, when they come to a yoga class, they go, okay, this is what it's about. It's not about athletic achievement or contortion. It's about working with my energetic system and having this whole body awareness and um, surrendering my mind to the intelligence of my body. So they come and I show them a very simple breath-oriented practice that's very inquiry-based. And they're so open to it, which was just so beautiful for me. We are able to dive really deep in uh, in the three weeks that we were together. You know, each retreat was a 21-day retreat, so. Um, and I hear from people, uh, now it's been a year, a uh, year and a half for some of the people, and a lot of them are still doing this simple daily practice, and it's really serving them, so. So I'm hearing you say that people experience a shift in their relationship to their bodies they're more able to work with their process of being in their body through their breath rather than being goal-oriented. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think that's something that the medicine helps people to realize. So can I say kinder, gentler? Yes, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Especially... Yeah. Um, you know, it can be especially difficult working with men, uh, teaching them yoga, because uh -huh. we're kind of cultured to, uh, I don't know, think of our bodies as like machines or something that we can form to our will and that we can push to do things that are beyond our normal capability and we're praised for that and all this kind of thing. And to see these men um, come to the morning yoga classes and be like so soft and gentle with themselves and just finding so much joy in feeling their whole body breathing as they move <laughs> with their breath was just ecstatic for me. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, there's a real parallel 
um, in the psychological sense as well. And, and, you know, to your questions about body work and, and the lived experience in the body, um, it really speaks to this. And that is that people, uh, you know, there are all this, well, let me back up a minute. I, I did a, uh, a study that was published in the journal of psychoactive drugs in 2012. And so I had 81 people in the study and the only criteria was that they had experienced at least one ayahuasca ceremony in North America. So I wanted a Western experience. And um, people talked about the relief of uh, depressive moods, anxiety, you know, they talked about having spiritual awakenings and changing their worldview. They talked about eating better and exercising more in, or one way or another and um, reliving traumas and re resolving issues. And also uh, stopping drinking was a big one. A lot of people stopped drinking completely. And but there, there was, beyond all that symptomatology, there was a theme that people described a shift in their relationship to their own um, suffering, if I could say it that way. And so here's the way it was expressed by one young man. I still get depressed. I still have anxiety, but I feel differently about it. Hmm. So... This is um, sort of a Vipassana approach to, to moods and to feelings that arise is, yes, they, they still arise, but I'm not as identified with them. And so there's a, a shift in the relationship with our own inner world. Uh, or to be more technical, there's a shift in our relationship with our default mode network which is the network in the brain that is active about 60 or so percent of the time and is just full of tapes that we're saying to ourselves, you know, so it's planning for the future and ruminating about the past and, and criticizing ourselves. I mean, it's the usual crap. You know, most of us can, we're pretty familiar with what we say to ourselves in this realm and it's not that that stops. I mean, it's certainly quieted in the ceremony, but it does come back. But people are not as identified with it. So there's a shift in their relationship with themselves that allows for more. The technical term is decentering. We're not so identified and centered on this stuff we say to ourselves. We have more objectivity about it, a little more distance. It's like, um, watching the content of our awareness rather than being the content. Mm. And so I'm hearing you say there's sort of a similar ease and shift in the person's relationship to their body that just allows for more being. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I can, I can, I can see that change in relationship when I watch people practice, but I also hear reports that there is this internal shift, which is, really the fundamental goal of classical yoga is to stop identifying with the the egoic self and start identifying with the deeper self or the soul and this is exactly what i feel you're describing here so there's a part of me that's beginning to wonder you know i mean certainly 
I'm a, you know, obviously I'm, I'm a proponent of psychotherapy. I mean, I think it's really helpful with, with dealing with, there's such an, a, a psychotherapeutic opportunity following ceremonies mm-hmm. that's beyond what's talked about as integration. Um, that's a real opportunity to really deal with our, um, to deal with the way we've constructed our egoic self and, and, uh, and so I'm a big proponent of, you know, let's take that opportunity. Let's not miss it. Um, but the research is beginning to look very similar to the research on meditation. I mean, the neurological research so that psychedelics in general quiet the default mode network as does meditation. So it's really possible that the most effective way of working with um, the ceremonial experience is to develop a meditation practice that follows the ceremony. Well, not only meditation, but I think also a body-centered practice as well, one that cultivates um, the more kindness, more sensitivity to the body. So that's well, why, I mean, you're giving an endorsement to my practice here, which is basically well, use, using yoga as a way to integrate <laughs> the experience, because well, I think I it's think, just, it's got it all. Well, you know, you're describing yoga as a meditation. Well, it's a physical practice, and it's also a, a mental and spiritual practice as well. And I mean, those things have been, it's been uh, kind of broken apart in the modern yoga world where yoga is seen as the physical practice only, and then there's meditation. And so meditation has also been isolated from a physical or energetic practice. Right. But at one time, there was, they were were integrated. Right. It's like you you did the physical practice, the breathing practices, so the energetic practices, so that the state of meditation arose naturally. You'd created the conditions where meditation just arises as a state of being rather than something you strive to do, like stopping the mind or something. Right, right. So I'm trying to also bring that back, is that integrated approach to yoga and helping to um, show people that yoga uh, contains all of those different elements working together. That's lovely. Well, thank you. Yes. And I think if we, you know, at some point, if we had people, <laughs> um, if you could work with someone while they were in a, uh, a, an, a functional MRI machine, I understand it's really not an easy thing to do, but if they could be um, doing their yoga practice in the function, and we could see the activity in the brain, what I wonder is would we see that decreased default mode network? And so that's, um, you know, that's something that's yet to come. But I think that's what, uh, that's part of what the potential is there to learn from the ceremonies is how to move into that state uh, in other ways. Mm-hmm. And the way that, you know, I'm also always coming from kind of a yogic perspective, right? It's just my nature and orientation. But um, one of the things that I've come to feel about these uh, powerful sacred medicines is that they actually uh, can serve the role of what the guru did in the past, where the guru could just open you up 
through a word, through a touch, whatever, um, so that you could have this breakthrough experience where you're breaking through the egoic construct and you're having a greater experience of yourself and of life and connection. And, you know, so for a yogi, I see these plant medicines as, as serving that role. Uh, you can do your practice for years and years and years and not ever have a breakthrough. You might see some like incremental growth, but sometimes, uh, you know, depending on where you come from and who you are, you really need something strong to help you break through and have that big transformational shift. And I think plant medicines are a really safe way to do that. I think the, the guru road is uh, fraught with danger and peril, especially in this day and age. I don't know if there's any true gurus left. Uh, so I advocate if you feel like you're really stuck and you need some help to break through, that psychedelics offer a way to do that and and best done in the context of a, of a yoga practice or a yogic understanding. That's that's that. I think that's love. I'm really thrilled to hear you talking about to, to hear you talk about this practice in this way. Mm. I've not, you know, y y you must know. Y y uh, most yoga teachers don't talk like this. You you do know you have. A, you know, and it's a point of frustration for me being uh -huh, engaged definitely. in the kind of the the modern yoga world. Um, right. and so I'm, I'm just doing my best to get that message out there. <laughs> right. Right. So th thanks yeah. so much for uh, appreciating. Yeah. And, and there, and there is, the, there is a parallel with psychotherapy as well. Um, it's not a practice in the way that uh, a meditative yoga practice is, but there's an opportunity there for people. And, uh, and, and I, there's a, another level of psychological work that the ceremonies open us up to. Mm -hmm. And I, I'd like to see that optimized. Mm. Yeah, this is one of the things I want to talk to you about, actually. Um, so there's this cliche that's been around for as long as I can remember that um, one night with ayahuasca is oh, like... Oh yeah, I knew you were going there. <laughs> what, okay, let me finish for the listeners though, because they may not have heard this. <laughs> okay, <that> sorry. <laughs> one night with ayahuasca is like 10 or 20 years of therapy. Oh, and, not 20. I've heard 10. <laughs> well, I've heard both actually, which Oh, is, really? Oh <laughs> yeah, boy. You know, people get really uh, hyperbolic about this kind of thing. Yeah. But I, you know, I think like so I haven't done a lot of psychotherapy, but it was uh, it was a therapist who led me to ayahuasca. Um, but uh, I guess maybe in the beginning of my work with ayahuasca, I could kind of go along with that because I had had some really deep insights that led to some profound shifts in my life. So I, you know, I thought, well, okay, that that sounds pretty good. I mean, I had some pretty yeah, I'm big, doing great, right? <laughs> some pretty big changes. But, right. but now, like after um, working with people uh, in integration work for a few years, I'm not so sure about that because I think that idea leaves out the aspect of the therapeutic relationship itself, which, um, you know, very experienced psychotherapists say can be up to like 90% of the catalyst for healing is, is the relationship, not necessarily any techniques or anything like that that have been applied. How do you know that? How did you come to that? Because research supports that, by the way. 
I mean, there's a lo- that there's a lot of research to support that, but most people don't know it. Well, you know, I'm a, I'm kind of an autodidact. I'm a self-taught person, so uh. I've read a lot, and I really love the writing of uh, um, uh, Irvin Shalom. Is it Irvin or Irwin? Yalom. Irwin Yalom. Yalom. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, loves executioner. <laughs> this, is a, this is a Stanford psychiatrist who is um, a lovely man, a wonderful writer, and he's made great contributions to the field of psychotherapy. Yeah, and as kind of a, a self-taught layperson or lay counselor, whatever the heck I have mm-hmm. still don't know what to call myself. I'm calling myself an integrative coach right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's difficult, you know. Um, but the basis of everything I do is uh, a healing therapeutic relationship. And um, right. th- this is actually what I learned through the lineage of yoga that I've been trained in, um, is that yoga is relationship and that the healing happens through the relationship between teacher and student. And so when I came across uh, Irving Yalom, is it Irwin Yalom or Irving Yalom? Yalom. Yalom. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Mr. Yalom. When I came across his work, (laughs) Dr. Yalom, excuse me. uh, When I came across his work and I started to read about the importance he placed on the therapeutic relationship, it felt really congruent with my approach to teaching yoga. Um, and so this idea that we can go and drink ayahuasca and in one night we're going to have the equivalent of 10 years of that therapeutic relationship just doesn't ring true to me, but I want to know what you think about that. Well, absolutely. And I've had wonderful breakthroughs in ceremonies where, um, you know, I felt something really important happened. Uh, and then I've had, uh, experiences where I, you know, I got myself to a therapist the next week. I mean, I needed to, hmm. to, to have some therapy sessions to help me work something through that something got opened up in a ceremony that I needed help to move through it and, and, and learn the most that I could out of it. That, um, so I've had both experiences and I think both are true. Uh, what I'm beginning to wonder about is I think if we, if we, uh, if we identified the kinds of issues that have come up in our ceremonial experiences, I wonder if, uh, and we wrote them down. I'm very big on, you know, a little journaling, but very Mm. specific. We just made a list, just a concrete list of the major experiences we've had that that are psychological in ceremonies. And then we look at it, would we see um, sort of core issues popping out at us? Would we see themes in those healing experiences that we think, oh, this is, you know, this was worth 10 years of therapy. But if we, if we looked at it, um, would we see themes that are that arise out of those experiences that we know continue to play out in our lives? Mm-hmm. So I was just talking with someone the other day, and she talked about part of what she's learned in the ceremony is to trust herself more, to trust her own intuition. This is a scientist, by the way, to trust her own, a Western scientist, uh, to trust her own intuition and uh sort of have more confidence in herself. And she's describing this as some of what she's learned 
So this would be on that list, I would say. And, you know, I shifted roles and I said to her, as the therapist would say, is that a major theme in your life? And she stopped and she said, yes, you know, it is. I never thought about it that way. Hmm. So once you identify something as a major theme, then she can look at how has this played out in my life in my past? How has it made a difference in my life choices and how I've handled things? How is it playing out now? What do I want to, you know, how do I want to handle this issue in the future? So again, there's this context, again, a shamanic sense of time is always the past and present are both, I just lost you. Oh. mm. The past and present. Go ahead. The past and present are, the past and future are present in the present. Um, So that's the shamanic part of it. But we all have core issues and therapy is about looking at them and and working with them in in a way that changes our lives. Hmm. You want to handle this? Yeah, I'm (laughs) going to just take a pause and check my connection here, okay? One sec. Just to pick up where we left off, I was going to ask you, um, what do you think are the most important factors that help someone to integrate their psychedelic or ayahuasca experience to promote long-term transformation and healing? Well, I can answer from a psychological perspective, and that is exactly where we left off. And that is that um, part of what happens in psychotherapy within that therapeutic relation, within the container of a therapeutic relationship that is in itself healing, um, part of what happens is we learn what are our what are our big issues in life? What are the themes of how we sabotage ourselves in our lives? How we get into trouble? What are our big themes? Um, or and that includes uh, experiences of trauma because out of that trauma we usually have um, made a decision about how to live life, and so it's those decisions that are the themes and. You know, we get a chance to look at how we've constructed ourselves, our ego, around these issues and whether we want to shift and change. We have an objective view of that construction and a chance to shift and change things uh, because we're not cemented to those ways of protecting ourselves and... um, We can do things differently. And so identifying a main theme opens up more choice. Mm -hmm. And and choice in the safety of a therapeutic relationship allows for greater flexibility and change and and what really can be very transformative in a life. So as as a psychotherapist, I'm really interested in that kind of that approach to working with themes that, that arise out of ceremonies. It's also a way of saying, well, how do I want to set my intention for the next ceremony? So there's, there's a sort of an, a double, 
uh, an arrow that goes in both directions between psychotherapy and ceremonies is the ceremonies can identify uh, core issues. And then as you work with that in psychotherapy, you can take that back into a ceremony and say, would you give me, you know, I'd like to focus on this. I'd like some help with this. Mm-hmm. So there's a sense of flow that goes in both directions. Mm. Yeah, one of the things that I do when I'm working with people is to uh, help them clarify those insights that they've received in the ceremony and then help them set an intention, not for a future ceremony, but for their life. I think um, this is one of the gifts of the yoga tradition is this idea that we call sankalpa, which is uh, an intention that's stated as if it already is so. Ah. Um, And so that can be used then as like a daily affirmation. There's ways to incorporate it into your practice. Um, But I, I, I just, I like that intention for life, you know, as if life could be exactly how you wish it to be. And helping that, like allowing that to guide your little daily decisions on how you relate to yourself and others? Well, it's not as much an affirmation about how I want life to be, but a chance to be conscious about how I am in that life. So whether I come out of the ego structure that I built out of my childhood experiences, mostly to survive and protect myself, or whether I want to make some changes in that programming mm-hmm. and make a daily decision that's a little bit different or relate to someone in a different way than I might, than I might have in the past. Mm-hmm. So it's not quite an affirmation, but it's a, you know, when you talk about sort of the the aliveness in the yoga sessions where people are breathing and there's a flow and there's kind of movement, even if they're not physically making big movements, there's, there's, ener- there's move- a lot of movement in the energetic body. You can see the movement flowing through the body, even if they might look still to other people right? You're with mm-hmm. me on that? Yeah. It's the same thing psychologically. There can be, you know, it's how do, how do I work with my construct, the ego that I constructed out of my childhood? How do I work with that in subtle ways to, to explore options, to have more choice and flexibility than I've had before? So it's not just saying, you know, I am now a person who doesn't uh, smoke cigarettes, Oh, no, I was thinking more an affirmation like, of, I, I am worthy of love just as I am. Something more like that, rather yeah, than this kind of like focused behavioral change. Right, right. Yeah. But like uh, an affirmation about that, uh, that fundamental relationship to self, you know? Right, right. That may have been damaged through early childhood right. trauma. So my position on that as a therapist is um, I don't ask people to do those kinds of affirmations because I see it as sort of wallpapering over pain. Hmm. So I want to know what's the source? Where does that, how did you get to that conclusion that you're not worthy? Where does that come from? How did that help you survive? So that's the kind of, 
you know, working into uh, the actual construction of how we've constructed ourselves that creates more choice. For sure. I think that, that uh, you know, Gabor Mate, I did some study with him, and he calls it compass- mm-hmm. compassionate inquiry. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big proponent of that, too. Um, but also, at the same time, remembering that at our core, we are whole and perfect. I think that's something actually very important for people to hear and to feel for themselves as a foundation for their relationship to self and, and world. You know, that's one of the things that people um, experience often. They have a real alive experience of it in a ceremony. Mm-hmm. I think that can that experience itself is a catalyst for huge change. Just yes. like remembering yourself and who you really are. And yes. that you are really a part of this world around you, not separate. That's the thing that just sets it all off, like the dominoes that you talked about earlier. Right. Right. That's very important. Yeah. And then with that experience, we can look at, okay, what are all of the the beliefs that you're holding or the behaviors you're engaged in that aren't in alignment with that truth that you had this like revelatory experience of? And like, thank God for that, that you had that experience. Okay. Now, having felt that, okay, well, then I can look at my life and go, yeah, that's not really in alignment with that experience that I had of myself or you know, the world. You know, there is, um, I didn't learn, you know, after coming out of Esalen and then going to graduate school, I didn't, I, I, I didn't learn much about psychotherapy in graduate school because I, I had had this incredible exposure. Um, but there was one old um, professor who basically said, uh, if you, if you, if someone comes into your psychotherapy practice and you cannot find a way to love them, mm. refer them out. Mm. And that's what heals in psychotherapy, that the context of the therapeutic relationship is acceptance and, and love. It's not often talked about this way, but that's actually what the, the container is. And there, you know, people experience this in the ceremony as well. And having this experience does help to heal mm. old childhood wounds. I, I completely, I'm, I'm with you on that one. I think that's the core of the healing relationship is that um, unconditional acceptance of someone, which is love, right? Um, Ron Kurtz would say, find the thing that's nourishing about that person, you know? So always looking for that deep connection with someone. Um, and it, you know, it, it makes me think like what's required of someone to be a good therapist. If that's the case, that means that therapists should be doing more work on themselves than anybody else (laughs) to be able to be that present with someone and that loving with another person requires a lot. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And so for me, you know, my, uh, my yoga guru would say the more you teach, the more you have to practice. And maybe the more that you engage in therapy with another, with clients, the more you got to, do your practice, you know, it has to be a requirement, doesn't it? No, not at all. No, <laughs> it should be. Well, oh, it should it, be. Okay. I, I, think, I think there's a legal problem. I think they can't force people. 
an <laughs> academic program can't force people to go into therapy. But there was there was a phrase of, you know, we 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 counsel some people out, <laughs> which means they help them realize they should not they're not healthy enough to be a therapist. <laughs> mm. uh, so some people were counseled out counseled out of graduate programs is the way it was put. Okay. But no, it's not a requirement. And I, I think for legal reasons, but, you know, it's a legitimate question to ask a therapist, if you're going to be looking for a therapist, to ask them, have you had your own therapy? Right. Or if you're looking for help integrating your psychedelic experience, do you have any experience with these things? Yes. Now, let, let me ask you something. Do you, how do you see ayahuasca different from the other psychedelics? How do I see it differently? I mean, it just, uh, it was the thing that really worked for me. But of course, there's no separating the, the medicine from the context. So for me, when I got introduced to ayahuasca, you know, I had done LSD and mushrooms and ecstasy uh, for years, you know, um, without a ceremonial container. Mm -hmm. And so when I got introduced to ayahuasca, it was in the context of the Central Daimi Church, uh -huh. the Brazilian ayahuasca church, where there's a very <clears throat> set uh, container and ritual, right. ritual form to it all, uh, which I, I really loved. I mean, um, the whole ceremony, everyone's singing with each other, and uh, it's very quite aesthetically beautiful. Yes. Um, and it kind of like reawakened my, the the Christianity that's in my DNA as a Western person, you know, and um, uh -huh. I was able to have this new relationship with, uh, with Mary and Jesus and St. Michael and all of these figures. Uh -huh. So that was a big part of it. You know, there was obviously the medicine that was opening me up to insights and things, but that ritual container was just so unique and powerful um, that I can't really say if it was the whole thing or if it was just the ayahuasca. No, it's inseparable. That's a, that you express that. That's the most beautifully put I've I've heard, and that was really a lovely expression of the church. Hmm. And then, I mean, the same happened when I went down to work with Shipibo people in a traditional maloka, uh, in the dark with uh, Icaros. Um, it was very much the same. That was just a huge part of it, like being in nature, sitting on the earth, being with these people who are so clearly of the earth, um, you know, very earthy, relaxed, grounded people um, who are able to work with uh, their voices in such a way that was just completely, utterly magical to me. So again, it's like, well, if I had, if I had taken um, psilocybin mushrooms in that context, would I have had the same experience? Maybe. I just, I don't know. And I can right. never know. Right, right. Uh, unless I do ayahuasca mm -hmm. in like a clinical setting or something, um, which I have absolutely no urge to do. Right, right. <laughs> you know, with right. a single rose on a table, some yeah, bad, right. bad paintings on the wall or something, you know. <laughs> and some like a playlist of like classical uh -huh. music. I'm just not interested in that. <laughs> no. <laughs> and I don't think yeah. I'd recommend it to anyone either. <laughs> Because for me, it's it, a big part of it is that context. And, um, you know, I'm not necessarily 
I'm not an, an adherent that it must be some kind of uh, indigenous context or something, but that it is a a well-conceived ritual context. Uh, that, that it's a sacred setting. That's sure. what you're describing. Yeah, but, you know, someone's living room could be a sacred setting. You know, I don't think um, things need to look "Quote unquote sacred" in order for them to be sacred, you know. Right. I'm, not a, I'm not a big fan of spiritual materialism. You know, uh -huh. I, I don't need all the the crystals and the beads and everything to be a, a real <laughs> spiritual person. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so this kind of like reminds me of a question that I wanted to ask you about, and it's one of the things that stood out in your book to me. Um, you continually refer to ayahuasca as capital G grandmother ayahuasca and I you know I found that kind of interesting coming from a western trained albeit uh, non-traditionally trained psychotherapist mm -hmm. but I did find that interesting that you personified um, this plant medicine and I'm wondering like how you came to that and why you felt that was important to present it that way in your book well, it really came out of the research, and, and the exact research question was, do you have an ongoing relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca? So that's how the research question was stated. And there were 81 people in the study, and 54 of them said, yes, I have an ongoing relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca. I communicate with her in dreams, in meditation, uh, in moments of reverie, I ask questions, I get answers, I feel that she's guiding me. Um, and people describe different personifications. There were, I think, three out of the 54 people said that they experienced her as a lover, which is not exactly a grandmother. Um, so there was some range. And I think in South America, there are some countries that talk about grandfather ayahuasca. And um, Jeremy Narby talks about the, the spirit of the plant is a snake. So there's a range of how the spirit is personified. And I just picked up what was the most colloquial used in Western circles that most people referred to grandmother ayahuasca. But it really could be any kind of personification. But there is a very clear sense of relationship with an other, a capital O, other. And that the other is a source of information that's not always available to me as just me and a source of guidance. Yeah, so <laughs> this, is, this is one of the uh, kind of sticking points for me when I hear this kind of thing is that I feel that... Um, this idea that ayahuasca is some external autonomous entity who is offering us teaching, I think what that actually does is disempower the person from accessing their own inner resources of intuition, insight, and wisdom. Um, and I, I think it's a story that people grasp onto is because we're so starved in our culture for elders for the wise grandmother or grandfather. And I don't think it's any coincidence that it's always personified as <clears throat> an elder, whether it's male or female. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder uh, how useful that is and maybe even how disempowering it is. Well, you know, you're raising a key question 
about, uh, or you're skirting a key question about, is this, um, is this uh, a higher self? Is this voice within me? Or is it an actual external voice? Is it actually a sentient entity that's communicating to me? Or is it my own inner voice? And mm-hmm. in, in the sense that the inner voice would be more empowering is what you're proposing. But um, people are very empowered with feeling they have um, the intuition and the presence to have a personal relationship with this other entity. So I, I've never heard anyone talk about it in a way that took away something about their own uh, valuing of their own intuition and higher self. Usually it's an, an additive experience that they feel they gain something from mm-hmm. this relationship. So, But it's not something that I hear actually people challenging very much. Um, I think it's just a lot of people just go along with that idea. And I'm wondering how many people actually question that because I don't hear that a lot myself. And I find myself sometimes the lone voice saying, um, maybe these aren't downloads from somewhere up there, but maybe these are <laughs> u- uploads from the heart. From something within. <laughs> yeah, I say uploads from the heart. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, that's the, that is the key question. That's a key philosophical question. And we don't really have an answer for it. So I would say, therapeutically, whatever works best for you. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, there is something that I've observed with people is that in this relationship, they feel such support and acceptance from the spirit of ayahuasca uh, that there's a sense of uh, of ayahuasca as an attachment figure. And there's actually some research from the psychology of religion on a relationship with, uh, it's it's generally called God, but it could be any, any, not even a deity, it could be any other, Mm -hmm. that, uh, that there's something healing in that relationship. And one way people have talked about extending that experience of feeling loved is that they feel they have a relationship with Grandmother Ayahuasca where she is always available to them and loving and kind. She can be harsh and confrontational, as most of us know, but she is always looking out for your best interest. So there's some sense of uh, healing that goes on in that attachment to in that relationship. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, that's not the same if it's an if it's an upload from the heart. That's a different framework that doesn't offer that same kind of healing. So the, you know we have all these different ways of looking at things. Who knows what is actually happening? I mean, this is part of the mystery, and so it's really just whatever is most therapeutic and supportive and healing for each of us. I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, I appreciate the idea, like whatever works, but I, I guess the issue for me is that if people are reliant on an ex- external source for insight, inspiration, guidance, that they are reliant on an external source rather than finding ways to tap into their own 
intuition and insight, which I believe, you know, it's my experience that it it's within us. And I've seen it come out in other people, uh, in talking circles and in the kind of work I do with people one-to-one. I see their inner wisdom bubble up to the surface and often surprise them. Right. <laughs> right. And we don't have an answer to, is this source within me or is it an external independent source? And I, I understand you're saying it's more empowering if it's an internal source. And these are different cosmologies that people have. These are different belief systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think about this idea that uh, uh, grandmother ayahuasca or a grandfather tobacco or however we personify mm-hmm. these plant medicines, right. that that's filling the void that's in our culture for the wise elder who's able to, uh, you know, something that we crave is the wisdom, but also the blessing of the elder. So I feel like when someone says, uh, grandmother ayahuasca, she's so loving. And she came to me and said, you're just perfect the way you are. And don't eat any more uh, hamburgers that it's like (laughs) serving this, this role that you're perfect now change. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) Show like that. (laughs) Um, yeah, yeah. I've, I haven't heard anyone report that grandmother ayahuasca thinks they're perfect exactly the way they are. It is usually stop the hamburgers. <laughs> mm. um, so she's, you know, uh, yeah, I think that's that you're describing the archetype that she fits into pretty well, that she, she's an elder and she's a, a wise elder. You know, one one of the people I know pretty well, who's written a number of books, Connie Grouds. She's a pharmacist who went to South America. And uh, I mean, it's now 25 or 30 years ago. And she was just going on, it's a story is similar to mine. She was just going for continuing education credits to work in a shaman's garden. (laughs) (laughs) um, The story goes, she had, I guess she had an open sore on her foot, which became infected. And she said, I, you know, I have to get out of here. I have to get to the city and get antibiotics. And this is an infection that's spreading. And the shaman said, well, let me put a poultice on it and just wait 24 hours. And so she did that. And the infection disappeared, basically. And she said at that point, well, this shaman knows more than I do. And I'm going to stay and learn. And so that's what she did. She has this long, lifelong now relationship And so she's trained as a shaman now after 25 years. And she at one point asked these healing spirits who were coming to her, who are you? Which I I thought took a lot of um, awakeness in the middle of a ceremony. I mean, I could barely survive. And she's asking these big philosophical questions and took a lot of nerve. She's she's very uh, strong. Who are you? And um, and they basically answered, we are the force of nature. Mm-hmm. And we take different shapes and different forms so that you can work with us. But we are the, force, the, the universal force of nature, the energy of nature. And that's, uh, you know, that's the best um, question and answer I've ever heard. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I... 
I'm with her on that one. Uh, yeah. So whether it's that universal source of nature from within us or it's an archetype of some form, I don't really know. Yeah. So I'm not quite in that category of whatever works, but I am in the category of there's a lot of mystery here. And I, I, you know, I still, I'm still sitting in the mystery rather than saying this is what it is. I really don't know. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I can only talk about my, my own experience. Um, uh, it's just that my experience happens to be a, a little different. And um, I do, you know, I often challenge uh, personification of God and, and nature spirits. Uh, I'm more of like a direct right. experience kind of guy. <laughs> it's like, I'm like, get rid of the idols and the imagery and everything. And like, let's just go right to the thing. <laughs> so that's just me personally, right. you know, and right. I don't want to impose that on anyone else because I know like the relationship to a deity or to an archetype can be, like you said, very therapeutic for people and can serve a healing role. So I don't want to take that away from people and just like knock down all their idols as long as right, the, right. as long as the idols are serving their own personal empowerment and healing. That's cool. Right. Well, I have to say I had a terrible time, uh, and I still I still switch sides on, you know, is this a sentient entity that, with its own existence, and uh, I just I I just. You know, I was not raised this way. I'm purely a Westerner. And so to begin to accept this cosmological framework is I, I is very difficult for me. I don't really stay on one side or the other. But um, I just lost my train of thought there just a sec. Um, the sent, uh, ayahuasca being a sentient being or not, and you switching sides? Yeah, I still do. And that's very... And, and so, you know, I talk about in the book is my own ontological crisis, which I, I, as much as I come out in the book about Grandmother Ayahuasca, I still have that crisis going on for myself. Um, but that wasn't my point. There was something else I wanted to say. It'll come up again, but, mm. um, oh, I know what it was. Is when I've interviewed people where they come from a Latin culture and they're Catholic, they don't seem to have any trouble with the spirit of ayahuasca. And I've asked about this and they look at me as if I'm really stupid because I am in this way. And they say, well, it's the Holy spirit sort of, don't you get it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so they already have a framework for a relationship with the Holy spirit. And so I'm not saying grandmother ayahuasca is God or the Holy spirit, but they already have an opening to having relationships with spirits and having a relationship to this unseen world that um, I personally don't. And so it's a, it's continues to be a stretch for me. Mm. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, the key is what enables that relationship and like going back to the relationship between client and therapist the power of that therapeutic healing relationship. And I think that's really what people are forming with grandmother ayahuasca, however they right. uh, envision that her, you know, and that's usually talked about in attachment theory as a healing relationship. And, um, 
and that that enables us to heal some of the wounds from basically the first year of life, or certainly the first three years of life. Mm, like the loving, nurturing mother that may not have been present in your own life? Right. And if, and if you have a responsive, kind, caring mother, um, you usually end, and half the people do, they end up with what's called a secure attachment. So there are categories. Um, but the other 50% have avoidant attachment or anxious attachment or disorganized attachment, a few, where there has been a history of abuse. Um, but the therapeutic relationship and the relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca can help heal those attachment categories. And it's actually called earned attachment. And they've looked at it when somebody with an, uh, an avoidant or an anxious attachment category marries somebody with a secure attachment category, and they are consistently there for them, they're consistently supportive, they're kind. I mean, consistency is key to this. Um, the spouse who started out insecure or avoidant can actually shift attachment categories. So there's a healing that takes place. And that's a similar healing to what happens in people's relationship to the spirit of ayahuasca and in psychotherapy. And that's part of what we mean when we say love is the consistent availability and support and kindness and unconditional acceptance. That's part of what heals those damaged attachment categories. Hmm. That's really beautiful. You know, psychotherapy can be beautiful, I think. <laughs> You think so? <laughs> yeah. No, just uh, it, it 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 touches me now, especially um, my wife and I. We just celebrated our eleventh wedding anniversary. Oh, congratulations! Thanks, and it, it's been the most profound spiritual experience of my life. Is this commitment to be with someone in all of those ways you just described as as love? Uh, consistency and acceptance and all of that nurturing uh, it's been you know I think more healing than ayahuasca ever was uh, and I think ayahuasca helped deepen that other relationship to a great degree and I think mm -hmm. my wife would attest to that if we asked her right now <laughs> right I've heard that before from spouses <laughs> otherwise she wouldn't like let me keep going back to the jungle you know <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But I think you're I think you're right is that there's real opportunity for healing um in in marital committed relationships. Mhm. Mm ah, well, this has been an amazing conversation. I got to ask so many interesting <laughs> questions and I I really appreciate you um yeah, kind of bearing with me and uh being so open to go to these different places. Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, it's really been fun talking with you. <laughs> oh, good. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm wondering, like, what's next for you? What are you up to now? Well, you know, I have, before we go to, are we still on the, uh, are you editing any of this? Are we still? No, no. On... I want people to know what you're up to oh, next. Okay, all right. So <laughs> I'll actually answer, because I have a question for you. Okay. Um, so in a few weeks, I'll be at the uh, Psychedelic Psychotherapy Forum in Victoria. 
British Columbia. And I'm working on a chapter for a handbook of psychedelic psychotherapy. And it'll be the title of the chapter is Ayahuasca and Psychotherapy. Mm, great. So I really am committed to maximizing the opportunity that comes after the ceremony. Mm, wonderful. Yeah. You'll be in my old stomping grounds in Victoria, BC. Yes. <laughs> Great. So if people want to find out more about what you're up to and follow you, where can they go? What's the well, the, the website that um, I don't always update, but it's there, is uh, listeningtoayahuasca.com. Great. So I'll give people a link to that. Okay. That's great. Thanks so much, Rachel. Okay. Wait a minute. I have a question for you. If you want to hear what that question is, It'll be included as a podcast extra available to Patreon subscribers at patreon.com forward slash Brian James Teaching. Thanks so much for listening. I wish you all the best. And please be kind to yourselves, be kind to others. Until the next time we meet on the Medicine Path. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.